Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Dominic Grace. I'm Eric Hoffman. And we are continuing our conversation about Akira Kurosawa movies, talking about Drunken Angel and A Quiet Duel. A couple of more obscure films, but both medical dramas and both um, star Mifune and Shimura. Um, I think it's fair to say not the not the favorite films of any of us three, but um, certainly very interesting movies. Uh, I have a whole theory about Drunken Angel and how it's a portrayal of, well, let me put it this way. Both movies are, are kind of in maybe my favorite era Kurosawa portrays in his movies, which is this immediate post-war period when the Japanese people were kind of trying to deal with the impact of the war and how it has thrown their society up into the air and how it's really just completely transformed everything. And I think we see a really interesting contrast in Drunken Angel with the traditional Yakuza on one hand, the drunken doctor who's you know, kind of in the middle of the past and present, tormented by the past and with hope for the future. And then the girl in uh, Drunken Angel who uh, gets uh, who, who gets tuberculosis, um, but is cured of it. So we have the Yakuza man who dies of it. We have the uh, Shimura character who's in the middle of it. And then we have the girl who gets better from it. It really represents kind of the three phases that the society is going through past uh living in the present and then the hope for the future and then all that's kind of also implied by the brackish pond that's in the middle of everything on which uh, i'm sure reminded all three of us of ikuru absolutely yeah uh which puts this movie in an interesting dialogue with his other films as well so i'll just stop there and just throw it out there and see where you go with that yeah, the U.S. influence is really apparent in this movie more so than in others. I think because it is that immediate post-war. It's during it was filmed during the U.S. occupation, and I think actually the U.S. military or, or some uh, bureaucracy of the U.S. government had to um, give approval for, <laughs> actually for both of these films. Yeah, there was some uh, kind of censorship board that. Uh, that... Yeah. Yeah, there was a censorship board. Uh, this was, curiously enough, uh, this was his seventh movie, but really arguably his first mature work and the movie that uh, solidified his voice. It was, it was the first movie of his, I understand, that some bureaucracy or another, either Japanese or American, did not significantly tamper with. Uh, so while it did had it did had it did have to have some bureaucratic stamp of approval by the U.S. occupation, they didn't they didn't tinker with it too much. I think in part because it was such a obviously pr kind of like pro-American anti-Japanese film in a way, because uh, it is critical of the uh, the yakuza the the Japanese gangsters and. Uh, and does sort of present the American culture as this uh, panacea, this kind of like freeing, liberating force uh, in, in the film. So, you know, there's jazz music and there's these kind of like 
clubs that look like they used to be occupied by GIs or, or what have you. So there's a very real American uh, presence in the film uh, in that sense, just culturally speaking. Um, it, it's really, um, well, let's see, what else? It, it was the first of, of the 16 films that he made with Toshiro Mifune. Um, it's also uh, one of the, no, not one of the first. I think it's in maybe the second or third that he did with Te Takashi Shimura, who was in most of, of all his actor collaborators was in most of his films. He was in 21 out of his 30 films, Shimura. So it really has that Kurosawa feel. <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> like a uh, Barton Fink, that Barton Fink feeling, you know, it has that <laughs> Kurosawa feeling about it. <laughs> um, I think it's, uh, I think it's a uh, kind of like um, an often overlooked film of Kurosawa's, not because it's not a good film. It is a good film, but I think uh, because of the impact of the films that followed it, this one is often sort of, you know, not remarked upon quite as often, except to say that it's, you know, the first collaboration with Mifune or something of that, uh, uh, you know, something of that uh, uh, nature. But he said it was his first, Kurosawa himself said that it was the first movie of his where his directorial voice manifested not only because of the lack of interference by the studios, but also because of that collaboration with Mifune. And Mifune's performance was kind of a liberating force for Kurosawa as well. He found that he couldn't really control him on the set. So he just let Mifune do uh, what he did. So Mifune's performance is really Mifune's performance. Uh, and it's it's remarkable to say that uh, as controlling as Kurosawa is known to be, that Mifune, of all his collaborators, could overcome that, you know, uh, that directorial um, uh, power and give it his own uh, authorial sort of stamp to the film, which I thought was really interesting that yeah. that was the moment where Kurosawa said, uh this you know this is the this is the actor this is the kind of performance that's going to push me beyond melodrama into something that's more realistic which is essentially what he wanted to do yeah i think that's an interesting observation i, I find myself wondering if uh kurosawa is I, i'm sure i've said this before in our conversations the most meticulous director I've ever seen in terms of absolute control over everything on the screen. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, the, the one missing ingredient was that like the, the one wild card, right? Mifune comes in, everything else is like the corners are nailed down, but there's this one force that pushes back. Um, and that uh, maybe, maybe that is as you're suggesting, I think, you know, a key to Kurosawa becoming Kurosawa. I mean, I still find, I think I said this before too, I find myself watching the post Mifune films and nine times out of 10, wishing he was in them. 
you know, uh, there are there are parts in all of them that are like obvious Mifune kind of parts. Um, and sometimes the actors even look like they're trying to channel what Mifune would have done in them. It's like Kurosawa was trying to replicate that with somebody else. So yeah, that's that's that, I hadn't really thought about that before you mentioned it, Eric. But that's uh, I think a really good insight. Yeah, in fact, I think we started talking about Seven Samurai, and that's the first thing that jumped out of this was the primal nature of Mifune's performance there, right? And yeah, it's it's really intriguing because uh, although he he collaborated most uh, with Shimura, it's Mifune who seemed to be his real muse. Yeah, Mifune's performance here it's it's very overstated. It's almost cartoonish. I mean his his facial expressions are border on the grotesque. <laughs> I love that um, dance scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or or comical. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean that just speaks to the bravery of Mifune uh, that he could trust his instincts well enough that it would translate well through film. That. Right. He could go just he, he could go just up to that point where it was almost to the point of being, you know, completely uh, uh, overplayed. And yet he's able to sort of scale it back. It's, it still comes off as realistic, and yet it's also as expressive as it can possibly be. Yeah, it's kind and of we like... see that in Quiet Duel as well, right? Because um, his emotions are so raw. So he's so they're so right there on the surface, so intensely felt that um, it almost feels like it overwhelms the movie at times. Yeah, and I, I I was I found myself feeling a sort of a sense of relief in that movie when we finally got to the scene where he basically you know lets it out, and you know I, I my body became impure without me even getting to have the pleasure of it, and he's going around the room and knocking stuff over and actually yeah. articulating it because that was that was one of the things like watching the movie i'm thinking dude just say something <laughs> you know maybe that's you know from a, a a totally different cultural and temporal perspective where we have much more grilled into us you know you got to talk about it you got to get it out there but that's what i was thinking man this would be so easy your problems would be so easy to solve <laughs> just you know just say it <laughs> yeah, donald ritchie uh the the uh great a Kurosawa critic, I thought he made a really good observation about Mifune, and he said he was one of the first Japanese actors to actually make the combination of himself and his character, so that you feel that they are both feeling the same thing. And perhaps that borderlines on the tautological, but I thought that was a very uh, accurate observation. That he was so, he was so, uh, he put so much of himself into his characters, but he also allowed so much of his characters to possess himself that it really comes across as just, you, you feel the performance. There's n nothing seems insincere about it, even though, as you say, uh, Dominic, it can be so like grossly overstated at times. Yeah, he is. And I think, I think all of us have come out on this before. He is arguably one of the great, screen actors period absolutely it's just uh and it, yeah yeah you know part of what you're saying there eric i think you know it it plays into what the ideal movie star can do right part of your perception of a movie with with mifune in it is that it's a tissue mifune movie right. um so all that baggage is there 
Um, and sometimes, I mean, sometimes I think it's played with self-consciously, right? Like the scene in Redbeard where Kurosawa finally lets him beat the crap out of some guys, <laughs> right? You know, okay, right. that's, that's, and I remember myself thinking at the time, that's what I've been waiting for this whole movie for Toshiro <laughs> Mifune to be Toshiro Mifune, right? That was like um, the only indication in the film of his past life as a samurai. He was able yeah. to keep that like bottled up. Absolutely, yeah. Until that, just that one moment of, of rage and release. But yeah, but unlike many a movie star, this isn't intended as a criticism of them. Unlike many a movie star, Toshiro Mifune was actually a stunningly talented and broad-ranging actor, right? Um, a lot of movie stars can't do that. They they can they can you know bring the baggage. They can bring their history. Um, but the ones who you can you're as you're or simultaneously, I'm watching Toshiro Mifune, but I'm also watching the Doctor or that uh, that there's an interesting sort of duality uh, to it. He doesn't. He's not like a you know a method actor who disappears into the part where you can forget you're watching. Mm-hmm. Say Robert De Niro or Dustin Hoffman. Sometimes just watching the character, you never forget you're watching Tashira Mifune, but you're also not watching someone who is just being a movie star. Uh, you're right. watching someone who is genuine, genuinely and organically performing on the screen. Even in you know these. Perfectly fine movies, but you know, kind of potboilery. Yeah, kind of melodramatic. Yeah, yeah, particularly yeah. these early ones like uh, yeah. this film and Stray Dog, and especially Quiet the Quiet Duel. Yeah. There is still a there is still a heavy dose of melodrama. Yeah, Quiet Duel, yeah. especially. Yeah, right. Yeah, one of the things I did admire about Quiet Duel, though is much as it hits many of the beats you're going to expect um, in a melodramatic film, um, it, it, it still managed to be subversive in some ways about them, right? Um, I, you know, I, I was anticipating, you know, the training Narusu came in and had the, had the past and the unwanted pregnancy. I was seeing, okay, we know where this is going, right? She's going to end up being the substitute for the, uh, the fiance. Um, and like we get to the scene where I think, yeah, okay, this is gonna happen. She she did exactly what I thought she was gonna do. She's saying, oh, you know, what if, what if there was a woman who you know didn't mind that, <laughs> right? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, even that I think was fairly daring for what was it, nineteen forty nine? Oh yeah, forty nine. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, we had that scene, and then the two of them pull themselves together. And like literally rebuild the room, right? Like she's walking around and putting the chair back in place. And then we never hear about it again. It's just gone. Except that she is now fully integrated. We see her with her hairdo changed again and performing as the nurse. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we don't get that. Oh, I've lost my love. Oh, woe is me and blah, blah, blah. But now look, I've got a new love and we can have a happy ending. We do have a happy ending, but not that kind of melodrama happy ending. Yeah, it's a it's very it's play against definitely an earned happy ending. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but one of the things I wanted to talk about with Drunken Angel is, yeah. um, we've been talking a lot about Mifune, mm-hmm. um, but I think the real lead character of Drunken Angel, as much as anything, is the society they are living in. This yes. is a big movie, right? And it feels like it really is like this portrait of um, this area of Tokyo in this time period 
and and um, the the different social and economic elements continually at play in in this world, right? Because we've got the poor kids who are playing in the brackish water. We've got the rich yakuza who are kind of um, you know living a blessed life in society and are able to do whatever they want and gamble a huge amount of money. Um, and then we have the people stuck in the middle, like the flower shop folks who were yeah. kind of forced to give some of their stuff to the Yakuza because, you know, otherwise they're going to face ter terror. So when the Mifune character just grabs a flower, it's he's yeah. you, you can see it all through the first like 15 minutes of the film. He's followed around like he's yeah. a celebrity in his community. Yeah, and that's that that to me is typical Kurosawa filmmaking, right, where the way the background moves around the character is, is completely integrated. Right. Um, yeah. you, you see it as he's moving through. You see the response. You see the characters turning. Um, and it's got that highly choreographed, almost dance-like element that I, I admire so much. Kurosawa's uh, work to it. It's pure cinema. Yeah. And that's the integration of everything you see and you're, you're being shown uh, who he is and, and the respect he has. I mean, that is... Like you were saying earlier, I think that is a, a work of a master filmmaker who's really thought through how he's going to present his story. And I didn't go back and rewatch it before we started talking, but isn't it like at least one fairly long, continuous take? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As we see him walk through the yeah. town. Yeah, that set, by the way, I, I was reading about this film. It was repurposed from a studio set for a comedy titled These, Fu These Foolish Times. <laughs> <laughs> apparently the studio invested so much money into it they didn't want it to go to waste so they kind of forced kurosawa to use it and he repurposed it and uh you know that again speaks to kurosawa's eye for detail but added like even so far as adding like cracks into the walls in the markets and uh flooding it with that water and and really re reusing the set in a really interesting and unique way yeah I, and i i assume I, like the signs and stuff too like you know the the, the posters in the background for the you know the dancing girls and stuff right i was just gonna say i thought it was really tokyo that was tremendously was convincing yeah it was a set a movie set the massive crowds of people moving through it yeah, I mean, again, we we always I always go on about how Kurosawa films have a really like a really tactile feeling to them. Yeah, yeah, you know, and this is a perfect example of that. I haven't I haven't actually seen any of the films. This is the earliest Kurosawa film that I've seen, so I haven't seen yet yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, any of the ones that preceded it. So I don't know if this is the first example of that, or if he was able to integrate some of that into earlier films, or if this was the film where. It, more or less perfected itself but it was readily apparent to me upon watching it I was like oh yeah this is a curse album yeah, I go, <laughs> you know uh, I, I i can it, i can almost you know, it I is can there in uh no regrets for our youth and one wonderful right. sunday they're both very yeah. place driven films okay because um, you could like smell the water you could like hear the mosquitoes buzzing you know, it, it just had that lived in quality to it that you come to expect with with the Kurosawa film no, that is of a and, piece with the earlier films. Sorry, I don't mean to speak over you. Go ahead. Well, I, you you said that uh, you you made an observation about uh, how lived in and real it felt, um, and 
I thought that the use of tuberculosis was it was almost probably topical at the time because historically yeah. speaking, I think it was the number one cause of death in Japan after the war. So, you know, now tuberculosis is like treatable with penicillin. You know, it's not a death sentence yeah. if you get tuberculosis, but back then it it really was. And so I, I thought you were, you know, how that that um poverty and desperation that we feel in these early Kurosawa films like Stray Dog and so forth. Uh, in this film, it's like really apparent because people are being affected on a biological level by this yeah. poverty. You know, yeah. they're we're getting sick and dying in droves. Yeah, both of these films are really driven. Young men. I'm sorry? Sorry, both of these films are really driven by that that sense of the contamination of the body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a physical rot, but it's a kind of societal rot that's affecting them. Yeah, right. yeah. I, I did think that in Drunken, Drunken Angel, that metaphor was maybe just a hair on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> I thought with the Shimura character yeah. being the alcoholic. Yeah. And that seemed a little on the nose to me as well, but I can understand. I think they were having some difficulty uh, in writing that character, Shimura's character. Uh, it just was coming off the page or something. He needed something. He needed some flaw to make him more interesting and make him more relatable. And certainly alcoholism is always, you know, omnipresent where there's poverty. It gives him uh, a but, gives him a motivation to be so short tempered too. Yeah. Yeah. And you can sort of infer that it might explain why he's, you know, where he is as opposed to a much more successful doctor. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how he takes that riot in the car from the more successful doctor who was yeah, he was his former colleague. Yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting scene. Um, and it was kind of interesting, too, because, again, you know, the way these films speak to each other, uh, he's in kind of the same situation as we saw in Akira, right? Where, right. you know, yeah. the drive of that film is basically, let's clean up this, you know, mucky, disease-infested area and produce parks so that people can have you know, better, better health. Um, it's much more literal than Drunken Angel because he's actually a doctor trying to heal people. But where it gets kind of on the nose is where that's the, there's that explicit speech, right? You know, your body is like this bog. Right? Yeah. As we watch someone literally yeah. dumping garbage into it. Mm -hmm. um, you need to get away from here and out into the country. And, you know, uh, yeah. but, you know, the idea of actually trying to transform that world itself isn't part of the film. Whereas, not at least not on a, a sort of global level. Whereas that's 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 the heart of Kira, right? Is right. if I'm going to accomplish one thing, I am going to change this place, right? Yeah, Matsunaga seems less concerned about saving those around him as saving himself. Yeah, or is it? No, I'm sorry, Matsunaga is uh, um, is Mifune's character. Yeah, he's yeah. Doctor Sanada. Sanada. Yeah. Sanada. See, yeah. He, he almost looks at Matsunaga as, uh, symbolic of him, uh, of himself as a younger man. Yeah. And there, there's so many, by saving Matsunaga, he's going to, um, exercise himself of his own demons or yeah. somehow. I'm sorry. Sorry, go. I think the film kind of foreground. Is there, I can't remember the exact word for word of it, but there was something in the first or second meeting between the two of them where the dialogue basically asks us, 
to make that connection. Yeah. Where, you know, aren't, aren't, aren't we a pair or something like that where we're asked to sort of see them as, as linked despite the, uh, the difference, uh, difference in status and class. I like the resonance between this and stray dog, the title of the film stray dog, because there yeah. are a couple of lines of dialogue I noticed where he was speaking about, uh, Matsunaga and he said, you know, strays always have their reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then at another point he says a dog is a dog. Yeah. Right. And then, of course, Stray Dog was the movie after he made after Quiet Duel. So, and they released those in pretty quick succession. So, yeah, he 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 clearly made this the connection as well. Yeah, whenever, but I get this feeling like whenever he's talking about Matsunaga, he's like really talking about himself. Sana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but also, was, I, I think that was a little too on the nose for me. It just also a bit of like the anger at the corruption of the society. And the anger that they would not, that there continue to be a presence that's dragging down the post-war Japanese society. There's anxiety, I feel, about this becoming kind of a kleptocracy. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's really kind of getting angry uh, because the Yakuza are, are kind of taking over. They're, they are kind of the the illness that's, that's kind of oh, yeah, infecting... Yeah the society they're part of and maybe that part that's the part that is a bit on the nose uh like you said you said a moment ago dom which is you know that that is i think foregrounded that, that we can make it such a clear connection between the yakuza and the mifune character and the brackish water um it is a little bit obvious i think yeah, not that not that kurosawa isn't fond of his metaphors but <laughs> yeah he gets like, he gets more he gets more sophisticated with them. I, I wouldn't say he necessarily gets more subtle with them in the later films, but he certainly gets more nuanced in how he uses them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems to me. It, it strikes me in watching this, and and I've made this observation several times with regards to other films, but this is yet again another example of his existential humanism. Yeah, because. Ultimately, Matsunaga, Sanada, uh, these characters are the culmination of choices that they've made. Yeah. And, you know, these are like, how does one live in a terrible fallen world? You know, yeah. does, one, uh, was, does one kind of manage to overcome it or does one succumb to it? And these are both characters who have in nearly every case succumbed to it. And their downfall and their positions in life are the result of the choices that they've made. And Matsunaga seems more or less resigned to his fate. And I think that's what most upsets Sanada about Matsunaga. He's unable, to, he's unable to overcome it. He's unable to see any way out mm -hmm. of his yeah. predicament. Or take yeah, any that, action to get out. Yeah. Or take Sorry, any Don. action to get out, right. Yeah, that's. I think that's one of the... I mean, we've talked, it's a key thematic element in Kurosawa, but it's especially, I think, in the case of these two films, which focus so much specifically on illness of the body. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that that really literally internalizes the sense of, you know, um, you have a material existence and you are defined and shaped by that material existence. And there is only so much room there to change who you are, right? Mm -hmm. You may be able to cure yourself of syphilis, 
but you know that's still in the future at the end of the film right um you can and that's one of the that's one of the, i thought that you know the ending of quiet duel is actually one of the most optimistic endings i can i can think of in a kurosawa film where you know the the, the, the coda isn't you know just here is ashes and i'm going to take them out to the country and distribute them but Oh look, the seventeen-year-old girl that we haven't seen since the first half hour of the movie comes running in with her with her X-ray, which is a report card. And look, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you can you can do it. It, it. it can be done. Maybe only one person at a time. Maybe only if you get to them young enough, right? But you know, it's 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 a much more optimistic conclusion than you often get in course on films. Yeah, in this Gosh, film, and I got to think like compare that ending to the whole of um, the bad sleep well yeah which yeah. is in some ways like this saying i had this optimism 10 years earlier but clearly it, it's the reality has played out differently than i ever expected in a much darker way than i ever expected instead of us being a, a better world the corruption just buried deeper speaking of corruption the yakuza as Sanada sees the Yakuza, Matsunaga believes that by, you know, uh, following orders for the boss that's just been released from jail and is taking his woman away from him, and he's just sort of like, you know, cowering before him like a uh, like an abused dog, you know, uh, following his every whim and just play being, you know, uh, entirely uh, placating, and he sees that as honor. He sees that as an yeah. honorable act, and Sanada sees it as pure patheticness. Yeah, he doesn't mm-hmm. see any. He doesn't see any honor in the Yakuza code because the Yakuza code to him is an empty gesture. You know, like there's no honor yeah. among thieves, that sort of thing. Yeah, they they so think, he's able. To, I'm sorry. They think they're samurai, but they're just thugs. Right. Yeah, and that whole mindset is what led to the war and them losing the war. And the shattering experience of the A-bomb. Yeah. And the realization that true heroism comes with self-sacrifice, but there's nothing self-sacrificing about the Yakuza. No. They're completely in it for themselves. Except for the useful idiots so they convince that there is a code and honor and, you know... Well, and then he's supposed to be the useful idiot at the end yeah. of the film. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is mm-hmm. nicely, you know. And again, that was something else that I thought, but halfway through, I think, okay, I see where this is going to go. He's going to end up torn between loyalty to the doctor and loyalty to the new, to the, to the new Yakuza boss. And he's going to turn on the new Yakuza boss, defend the doctor, defend the woman. And he does turn. But again, we don't get that predictable plot development, right? He does make the turn, but yeah. it's not really motivated that way. And it, it basically fails, <laughs> right? I mean, he drops right. dead. The X, the X factor there is the other gangster, the one who was in jail, Akuda, yeah. who uh, comes back from jail and is more ruthless, more nasty, more yeah. committed to the Yakuza code, and basically, you know, just just pushes everything else aside because he's taking his rightful place. Yep. But, um, yeah, I guess he he is a character who represents a certain level of cynicism about the society's being uh, ability to improve itself. What did you guys make of the, the 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 fight scene between the two of them at the end, where they end up like sliding around on the floor in the paint? 
Okay, so interestingly enough, behind the scenes, the set dressers had apparently the hallway was too easy to get around and kurosawa wanted something in the way of the actors to create okay. some dramatic tension that they would sort of stumble into well apparently when they had put the ladders in they had forgotten to take away the the paint cans oh no <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so the paint cans weren't actually supposed to be there and so it was quite fortuitous they just ran into it and the paint cans spilled and they just kept going with it, you know. It's just fun. okay, that's keep interesting. Rolling, keep rolling. <laughs> so I, I it underlines that like uh, this idea that the yakuza are supposed to be these frightening, you know, um, yeah. samurai like men. Yeah, it, when they're just like bumbling idiots, you know, um, and they're 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 not even good fighters, you know, and they're supposed to be. It's sort of like taking the wind out of them a little bit, I think. Yeah, kind uh, of like a three stooges routine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. It's a pathetic, I thought that was weird, very interesting. Yeah. goofy battle. I, I enjoyed it. I thought I thought it was interesting. And also adding that uh, kind of like uh, bathos filled music that they had going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like lighthearted music. I don't even I, 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 I can't recall what the title of the song was, but it was some sort of like sentimental tune that was always like the GI had uh, the Americans had imported or something along those lines, some jazz song. I might be misremembering this, but I thought I read somewhere that it was some music that Kurosawa had heard. And even though it was sort of sprightly, it had made him feel depressed to hear it. So he was <laughs> trying to replicate that and saying, because it's counterintuitive, right? Yeah. You play this music when something serious is happening. Um, right. And the effect, if it works well, is actually not, is going to be to enhance that. You know, I kind of liken it to the singing in the rain scene in Clockwork uh, uh, Orange. You know, I can't listen to that song anymore without seeing Alex, you know. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and it's, I think it's the same sort of thinking, right? Let's take two things that are like totally opposed to each other and put them together. And from the clash between them, you get the effect. But I could be, mis I'm, sure, I'm sure I read that, but I could be misremembering it. That might, might have been a bit of a different film, but I think it was about this one. I think what made this movie more devastating and less an exercise in melodrama is that the moment where Akata appears uh, is the very moment or just after the moment where Matsunada like uh, resolves to clean himself up yeah. and mm -hmm. to change his life around. Yeah. You know, and he bought that carnation, another kind of like heavy handed Kurosawa yeah. moment where he tosses the carnation into the stagnant water. Yeah. But, you know, it's that last clinging to life, you know, represented by that flower and he's just throwing it away. And it, and that's really the moment that the whole film turns on, because from that yeah. point forward, it's just it's just self-destructiveness all the way up to the end. And even that fight, I almost feel like was an act of suicide. Yeah. yeah, on his part. Yeah, because he knew he was. Well, we see him spit up the blood, right? Right. It's probably not the first time he spit up blood. No, no, it's uh, truly I, copious, I it's it, huge but... amount of blood too. Yeah. yeah. Gotta love Kurosawa knowing when when to show you the wet shot. Yeah, I did write down this little note, and I I I don't know if you'll be able to follow it, but it, it just occurred to me while I was watching the film. But the duel at the end is not about a balance a balance of power between these two characters okada 
to Matsunada symbolizes his wasted life. Uh, that he's given up everything for this guy, and now the guy has done nothing for him, and he's just going to, like, you know, use him as yep. a useful idiot that he's overheard, you know. Um, so, in other words, his act of trying to take out Akata is a form of self-destruction in that sense. But it's a self-destruction of his self-destruction. <laughs> He's, the, destroying, he's destroying his doppelganger, his evil twin. He's destroying his doppelganger, like as foreshadowed in that dream sequence where he, you know, where the yeah, yeah. Up I'm glad the you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, the doppel that the, the whole bit with the doppelganger, the paint obscuring who they are, yeah, preventing right. you from seeing them with clarity. I think right. it's really important there. We're, uh, we see the Same echo of this in like, Stray Dog, dog by the way. Yeah. 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 At the end of Stray Dog, exactly, where they're wrestling together, and you you can't tell one of one apart from the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so therefore, this is a, a motif that's very important to Kurosawa, and uh, I think represents the internal duality we all carry inside ourselves, right? Because, yeah. uh, you know, this is this is on one side the person that we become, and then on the other side, uh, the aspiration for what we could have become. Interestingly enough, that dream sequence inspired Lucas in Empire Strikes Back to film that scene where Luke Skywalker on Dagobah goes down into that pit and encounters Darth Vader and then oh, the, yeah. pops his head off and then the yeah. mask explodes and there's his face inside the mask. <laughs> another, Yet another example of <laughs> Lucas stealing from... <laughs> Borrowing anyway, yeah. <laughs> right? Homaging, yes. Homaging, yes. <laughs> At least in that case, it's quite not quite as on the nose as some of the other ones. Right. <laughs> as, as in when we talk about Hidden Fortress. Oh right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. I mean, you might not really be able to make a case for plagiarism there, but there's certainly an awful lot of um, borrowing. Certainly is. Yeah. Which I didn't know, of course, when I first saw Star Wars, right? When I saw Hidden Fortress years later, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> this feels awfully familiar. Yeah. Can you remind me, there was another film where there is a dream sequence by Kurosawa, right? No, we just we saw one in Kagamusha. Kagamusha, thank you. Right. So much, yeah. much later. Yeah, and a much more elaborate uh, dream sequence. Although in some respects, similar, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the same basic motif is he's confronting the image of himself right uh the right. the the warlord right i'm genuinely curious like was this a popular thing with like the the french directors of the time like renoir this is a lot of dream sequences i mean i'm only thinking of a couple of dream sequences in in um, hitchcock i'm not sure if that mm -hmm. if if those influenced him or where this come from because it feels so out of place compared to the rest of his films. Uh, it's certainly not in any of the earlier films I've watched by him. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Um, I'm not particularly familiar with the French New Wave, to be perfectly honest, because literally every French New Wave movie I have watched makes me want to tear my eyes out of my head and crawl under my chair. Mm. Oh, I God. wonder if it wasn't in a... I wonder if it wasn't in a John Ford film or something where somebody had a 
yeah. highly symbolic dream sequence. I would be surprised. I mean, I can't think of any, but we know that's actually funny. You know, uh, my wife has never seen a Kurosawa film except for like a couple of the more recent ones, like Dreams. Um, that I was watching the films earlier today, and she walked in behind me and she says, "That looks like like a 1940s, 1950s American movie." Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, yeah. well, yeah, I mean, he was pretty influenced by those guys. <laughs> to, oh, does yeah. you know? And she said, even the music. I said, oh yeah, yeah, it's mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so I mean, that's something that certainly is obvious to someone um, who's just looking at it cold that that influence is there. But I. I can't think of any John Ford films that have dream sequences in them or Howard Hawks films that have dream sequences in them. I just don't recall it being that common a thing in films yeah. back in the 40s and the 50s. I, I mean, guess I could think of one or two noirs maybe that had that. Yeah, it was, a, it was a noir kind That's of thing. Yeah. Hallucina- hallucination scene, if not yeah. a dream scene. Um, and I guess that leads to my other, one of the other things I wanted to mention is it really is uh, noir. Or we watch oh, yeah. that pair. We watch yeah. that pair yeah. of Norris. I think it fits comfortably in that area. Yeah, it really kind of checks almost all the noir check boxes. And that is about the the. Well, I put it this way: there's a um, Eddie Muller who did who's the kind of the known as the noir guy. Um, did an intro to this film that was part of the Seattle Noir Festival several years ago, and he talks about how international noirs specifically ones from japan and germany um really kind of have a different resonance than american noirs because they were after all the defeated party and there's this kind of interesting motif he talks about around uh regret for the past and the attempt to kind of come to terms with that which destroyed them whereas americans more about disillusionment um the the Japanese and German wars he's talking about have a much more feeling of uh trauma, I guess, past trauma going through them. Although American American films and British films also have plenty of trauma in them as well. It's interesting. It manifests itself in Godzilla, but in Quiet Duel it manifests itself in syphilis. Yeah. Right. You know, I have a wonderful transition from Drunken Angel to Quiet Duel if you want to move okay. into the next film. Sure. <laughs> uh, Drunken Angel was such a success in the theaters in Japan that Kurosawa decided to adapt it. And this speaks to Kurosawa's love for the stage as a stage play, which I did not know. And apparently huh. Mifune and Shimura both reprised their roles really? on the stage. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Which brings us to the Quiet Duel, which is based on a play. There you go. <laughs> huh. There's the segue. Wow, <laughs> nicely done. It's his only adaptation of a contemporary Japanese play. All of his other play adaptations are primarily based uh, on Western sources, which I thought was unique for this film. I didn't know that either. And on the other hand, it's also like, you know, in many ways, pure Kurosawa. I like, almost burst out laughing when I started watching it. It's like, rain, rain, rain. Yep. Yeah, right. The, <laughs> yep, the weather. <laughs> Definitely in both movies. At the beginning of the film, yeah. yeah. In both the films, right? They're the, because there's a lot of rain in, a lot of rain in uh, Drunken Angel as well. True. Yeah, one of the oh things my that goodness, I... the, the, the first, the first 10 minutes of Quiet Duel um, are as 
beautifully filmed, dramatic, and interesting yep. as anything right. he ever directed. Yeah, and it anticipates uh, uh, the same style uh, as Redbeard, which was yep. more or less the announcement of his late style. These long cuts, yeah, these long takes, not a lot of dialogue. Yeah, minimal dialogue. There was we right. were three or four minutes in before we got the first words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, when I was watching it, I was thinking, yeah, this is this is an early Kurosawa film. But it is a, a even here. It's a master class in how to use the full range of cinematic techniques to tell the audience everything they need to know. How tired these doctors are. How unhygienic the conditions are. Um, you know, it's all there. Uh, just almost like a like a like a machine, like a watch floating out, right? You know, close up of scalpel, move away. <laughs> uh, it's really just um, quite impressive. Uh, in that it gets you, I mean, even though I knew what the film was about, I was watching and I was thinking, man, these are pretty unhygienic conditions to be doing surgery in. And it's like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> but it's it's all there. It's all there right on the screen. And if you're paying attention, you know, nothing surprises you about it because it, he's already told you, right? I, it ties, it's actually one of the things that I find, I'm sure you guys have seen the uh, Kurosawa, it's a joy to create um, documentary stuff where it, the, the, all the stuff in all the films so there's the, the the tag thing is kurosawa saying basically film should be easy to understand mm-hmm. right shouldn't mm-hmm. have to like work at it it should be clear and you know that's one of the things that he is just a master at i mean i, I think well the only times i don't know what's happening in a kurosawa film is because he's, he's referencing something cultural that i don't know about all the rest of the time everything the way the way he designs his scenes the way the camera moves the way the actors move Bam, it's all communicated right there to the audience. And I thought that that opening sequence was a, a really good example of that. Yeah, and, and of course the audience at the time would immediately say, oh, he's in Burma or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, Again, so- very topical, yeah. Yeah, you don't need the little words up on the screen or whatever. And then when, when it, the film moves ahead a couple of years and he's back in Tokyo, again, we don't need that either. It doesn't need to be lampshaded for us at all. No, and you have those other marker moments, like, you know, the different shots of the, the fence. And you get a few seconds and you know, okay, well, the season has changed because now we don't have flowers anymore. Now we have just like the frozen scene. Okay, now we have dew on the uh, on the on the on the on the limbs. We're in spring again now. You know, it's uh it's all there. You know, you don't need the, the cards telling people, just visual, do a visual cues located in, in in you know a beat. And that repeated pattern of the same image, buried. Yeah. Yeah, we really see his his DNA for future films. I mean, I, there are a couple places where it reminded me of Throne of Blood. Uh, other places, especially the rain, reminded me of Rashomon. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and just the the way he ta- yeah, as you're saying, Dom, he, the way he takes the full spectrum of filmic technique. And just throws them all there in a way that really accentuates the power of what he's showing us. I mean, even just when we get to the hospital and what the third kind of extended sequence and the first shot is um, a close up, right? It's the woman in the chair and then the long hallway behind her. So you get the sense of space, yeah. people occupying an area. Um, we quickly learn she's pregnant. So we get a sense of what he does. Um, I, we do have the the it shows us the sign before we go into the the hospital, but even still, right, it gives us a better sense of like the larger world around him. 
in just this very elegant way. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, that's here's another question. I, I found myself waiting for the who was he, the postman guy, to actually have some sort of use. The guy in the uniform who kept on coming in and talking to people. Did you guys wonder what he was doing there? Just seemed sort of like a functionary sort of like I don't know. All all of the characters in this film seem to serve be plot service to me. Yeah. I just what, can't figure out what, is, what, what plot he was serving. <laughs> I wouldn't say they were all good plots. <laughs> I, I, I think it might have just been that he was the guy who was there to get them to, to talk about whatever. Right. So he was yeah. a sounding board, so he gets an exposition. Sounding board, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's the classic friend in the in the cop movie who's there to bounce ideas off of in some ways. Gee, Dr. Einstein, can you explain to me once more how this works? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. I, I was just curious because normally Kurosawa isn't that ham-handed. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if I was missing something as, as if there was something about him that, uh, that maybe, maybe he was a vestigial holdover from the play that had more of a function of the play. There does seem to be an uncharacteristic for Kurosawa reliance on narrative norms in this film. Yeah. yeah. Because it is so plot-driven. Unlike other Kurosawa films where, as you stated, Dom, yeah. where what it is that you're anticipating isn't isn't followed through on. Although you, you did point out there was an exception in this film as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's, again, you know, one of the things that I do think is great about Kurosawa is he can play with very familiar tropes. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can never be sure he's actually going to fulfill them in the way you expect, which is great. Because nothing is more boring than watching a film that you can predict everything that's happening. Right. At least for me, I love it when I think, okay, this is going to happen. Oh, no, it didn't happen. Wow, cool. But I think but I think this film would have benefited from more unpredictability. Yeah, yeah. It was a little mechanistic. Right. Which, again, is very uncharacteristic for Kurosawa. Yeah. And that could, you know, that could be the fault of the source material as well. Yeah. Uh, I have in my notes the the American bureaucratic uh, organization to which they had to submit screenplays was called the American Occupation Civil Information and Education Section. Yeah, that's that sounds like bureaucratic censorship doublespeak. Yeah, <laughs> and apparently all they were on the lookout for was anything containing feudal content. F-E-U-D-A-L. Oh, really? So if anything leaned too much on feudalism, it was right out. <laughs> That's interesting because that actually, it, it did come up in Drunken Angel, right? Where the doctor's saying your yeah. feudalism doesn't work anymore. So I guess it got through because it was critical of it. It was critical of it, right. Yeah. That, that was the key component. Yeah. Right. Looking to drive out that mindset. So the problem is uh, that when they submitted this, Initially, uh, in the film, Mifune's character was going to go mad from syphilis. Okay. Uh, which the board had a problem with, apparently, because they thought if people did have syphilis, they would be less likely to seek out treatment for it. Because they would think that its, it's only outcome is madness. And so why bother? Yeah. <laughs> But apparently that didn't bother Kurosawa as much as when he interviewed doctors, and again, this is Kurosawa being Kurosawa. 
And the doctor said, no, actually, uh, it's very unlikely for someone to go crazy from syphilis. And so he thought that's unrealistic. And so he went back to uh, depending more on the source material again, rather than changing the uh, the play for the purposes of the film. And yeah. I think obviously would have probably resulted in a much better film because it would have given Mifune some meat. Some more, some more scenery to chew, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it just... also would have it Sorry. also would have given the film a little bit more unpredictability, I think, and a, a little bit of more like existential horror, which yeah. I think is missing from this film. As of this week, just get the husband, the soldier who has yeah. has the disease, and it's unclear at the end whether he's crazy or drunk, crazy from the disease or drunk, and. Uh, is it just me to Curacao leave that vague to you as they well? Seem, they seem to me to imply that they did snap. There's something in the dialogue about he shouldn't have seen that or he saw that too soon. Um, he sees the baby, yeah. Yeah, so my my reading was that he'd gone at least into a fugue state or some kind of catatonia and that, that was, he was his, he was gone. That, but before that, he's also kind of stumbling around. and Yeah, well, he was obviously drunk when he got there. Yeah. Now we meant to see him as drunk or we meant to see him as suffering from the disease or some combination of both? I think maybe all of the above. Yeah, I mean, again, that was, it struck me as a a kind of a two-pat for Kurosawa. Let's make sure that the guy who's been the asshole, pardon me, uh, gets properly punished at the end. And he probably gets punished by the disease basically claiming him. In that cliche way, you know, as, as you said, Eric, you know, it's not at all common, but it can happen, right? Syphilis untreated uh, can lead to, uh, lead to, uh, and there's a reference to the film that the spider keeps eating his brain, right? right. Isn't, isn't that at that in that same scene that the spider keeps already eating his brain? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that was my read. Is you know, this this guy has basically. He's engaged in the immoral acts that got him syphilis, and that's very clearly judged from the beginning of the film. Like when the guy lying beside him in the hospital, oh, I'm around you, right? Um, and he's refused to get it treated, and he's refused to tell his wife, and he's got his wife pregnant, and he still refuses to believe, and he lies to her. Um, you know, he's uh, killing people, not just himself, right? Um, and, you know, there's that outburst from the nurse, you know, you're the one, look at how much you made him suffer, you know? So it, it, to me, it read as basically just poetic justice, right? Mm-hmm. This guy, this guy ends up suffering from that cliche, you know, madness from syphilis thing. That he's, 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 he's not, he's not treated, he's, he's gone too far. He's, he's not taking care of himself. He's confronted with this image of this terrible thing that is, which we don't get to see, of course, because it's not a horror film from his, from his wife. Um, and he's gone. Mind is just erased snap and that's it he's just going to be a, a vegetable for the, for the rest of his life that's my that's think, my reading of it i think maybe what compelled kurosawa to leave that aspect of it in the film is that he had all these other contributing factors and it wasn't syphilis alone that yeah. led to this breakdown yeah um what i didn't like about this film is unlike drunken angel where the disease is essentially like a physical manifestation of the of of the protagonist's uh, inner turmoil. Yeah. In this film, the disease is just another element of the plot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to have any layers to it. 
I still I still got stuck on this question of why didn't he just put a glove on before he went back <laughs> into the body, right? And that, that that kind of stopped me a few times. Okay, maybe there's a yeah. glove shortage, whatever, whatever, whatever. You can hand wave it away. Yeah, but, um, I, I thought that he had peeled the glove off because he was finding it too difficult to do the fine stitch work with the gloves on. Yeah, I that's, think that's what it was, yeah. Yeah. The other thing that seemed to be lacking from this film is there's no atmospheric tension to it, really. No. Once he gets back to Tokyo, it's kind of like you, you get a you get a real sense it was based on a play. And all the action seems to sort of take Very place. Very stagey, yeah. Very stagey. Unlike Kurosawa films that really benefit from his sense of, like we were just talking about, the yeah. realism, the tactile uh, nature of it. All of that seems to be missing, and it sort of draws away from the tension of the yeah. film, I think. This is also so, kind of a very kind of emotionally naked film in a way that we're not used to with Kurosawa. There's a lot of hand wringing, a lot of tearing, yeah. you know, anger, the soliloquies, um, a lot of kind of non, a lot of things that we don't think of as Japanese approach either. And a lot of things that are not very Kurosawa styled. Yeah. Uh, and I found that to be, I don't know, intriguing in a way. I don't, want to, I don't want to paint necessarily a negative light on that because I thought it was interesting to see him go so far down that road. I mean, even the Shakespeare adaptations, we don't see that kind of level of of um, hand wringing. You know, when when we see Mifune in Throne of Blood, uh, you know, which would have been an ideal time for him to to have that kind of level of reaction, we don't quite see that, right? Uh, and um, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that either. It's kind of emotional nakedness. Yeah, I was, I, you know, it sounds like we're all being very critical, and I guess we are. <laughs> uh, it's not a great Kurosawa film. It's, it's a good film. Yeah, but, it's a good film. Um, yeah, it's, it, it had a, to me, it had a kind of a, well, the, the melodrama, they had a kind of a soap opera feel to it, right? Which is right. that the plot beats seem to depend upon, you know, how can we, how can we bring this for the emotional ox, right? You know, why don't you love me anymore? Why won't you tell me what's wrong? Uh, I would still like to have you. And then you know, almost a kiss and all those sorts yeah. of things. Are, uh, I think that's what you're talking about. You're talking about the, the emotional nakedness of it, right? It's much more about um, those sorts of repressed desires um, constantly being the focus of what the characters are dealing with. Uh, whereas Kurosawa, it's not as if his other films don't have that element. But he's much more interested in how those things manifest themselves in action elsewhere. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not layered in in the way we're used to yeah. either. Yeah. The way we just yeah. saw in Drunken Angel, where the right. characters are going through equal amounts of angst. Yeah. And turmoil and anger. You mean the Mifune character alone is carrying multiple levels of um, mm. frustration with himself, as society, with the, with the doctor, et cetera. Um, so it, it's just interesting contrast yeah i'll give you an example there's we, we've spoken about kurosawa one, one of his favorite themes is classes class distinctions class differences yes. and it, and here you have a, a marvelous opportunity for him to give you some insight into yeah. that yeah uh, and he really doesn't there doesn't really um, seem to be any meat on that bone yeah, uh, it comes up but it feels like a plot coupon as opposed to something yeah. organic. right yeah and that would have been ideal for the for the uh, returning soldier who gets his wife pregnant, who has the syphilis. I mean, 
in a stronger Kurosawa movie, we would have that be an element of the story. Right. And so we'd get the sense that his disease came from an inner corruption inside his soul and manifested itself in his um, downward spiral in the socioeconomic world. And we get this larger portrait of the society. Maybe that's part of it too, is that there's not a sense of the larger uh, degradation of the society in the same way that we just right. saw. Yeah, that's much more bound. Yeah. You know, as as precise as the composition of the film is, and it is it extremely meticulously filmed. Oh, yeah, yeah. You still get the sense that it's just a meticulously filmed melodrama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be any more than that. It's it's a well done uh, example of of what it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. right, exactly. And I can never get past because it was made under U.S. US supervision and knowing that going in, yeah. I couldn't get past feeling like it was almost like propaganda, like like U.S. military VD propaganda. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a it, problem it just, play. It's a yeah, problem yeah, story. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and like for that, that climactic moment, that climactic scene be- between Mifune and his love interest, you know, it has all the trappings of the melodrama. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, there, you know, it is compellingly dramatic to watch. And of course, Mifune performs it adequately, you know, uh, more than adequately. But it, it doesn't seem to be th- anything more than just like the interplay of romance. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's what you can find in any other film from this era. Yeah. Uh, the the character that I found far more interesting, and and also I, I will say that the actress who played his, uh, the lead uh, was a very inexperienced actress, apparently, yeah. and that and that definitely came off yeah. in the film. She was not convincing at all. the 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 character that I found far more interesting was the nurse. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who I thought was wonderful. And, yeah. and kind of like stole the movie for. <laughs> yeah, she was. Yeah, one of his strongest female characters, I think. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I I I love the moment where she kind of says to him, like, uh, she's she says, uh, um, she like offers her, herself to him, even knowing yeah. that he is yes. yes. I mean, how you know, how remarkable that I think you mentioned that earlier, Dominic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she's so like sexually liberated for, yeah. for this 1949 yeah. film. It, it was really interesting. She just stepped off the screen, had this kind of yeah. like wonderful energy to her, and and the, and how she would say these things, like these offhanded remarks that were just like so extreme. Like she would say, like poor people should die early for their own good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's really like wow, this is. This is pretty brutal, man. Like this is what I this movie needs more of this girl. Yeah, it needs, it needs more of this and less of the less of the standard, you know, melodrama stuff. It was she was she was very interesting for sure. Right. Um and yeah, you know, Kurosawa is generally not good with women. Um no. you know, thinking through all of his films, this is one of the best, if not the best, female part we've seen. Right. Yeah. The woman in the hidden fortress, I think, is maybe a strongest woman. Oh, of course, we haven't watched that yet as a group. No, I believe the that the actress who played the nurse is in Seven Samurai and a few of his other films. Yeah, she looks familiar, but I couldn't. Yeah, as as is always the case, but I couldn't think. Okay, so where am I? I must have been a Kurosawa film, but I can't remember exactly which one. Yeah, I couldn't place exactly which character she played, but I know that she's in Seven Samurai, at least. 
and maybe several others. Um, I think this was their first collaboration, and he wisely reused her again <laughs> several times. Yeah, she was great. really good. Yeah. Eric, you were talking a little bit about um, how you watched um, I Live in Fear. Yes. And I feel like that's kind of the end of this whole cycle of, of the post-war critique films. And I'm curious how uh, I Live in Fear and either of these movies kind of you felt like we're kind of in conversation with each other. Well, I always go back to that um, existentialism of these films and, and that post-war existentialism, because that was in the that was in the air at the time. You know, I mean, that was when Sartre and Camus, uh, you know, the, the guys uh, were in Europe uh, buying these paperbacks and bringing them back to the United States. And that, like, you know, and it's sort of like that infested of the academies and everything and it also found its way to kurosawa somehow clearly uh because since he made a movie of the idiot yeah yeah yeah. so you know adapting uh, the idiot i should say well and you know and maybe he found it through uh dostoevsky who was very influential on the existentialists Mm -hmm. you know the french existentialists and so on so um it does seem to have that quality to it where he's utilizing that that kind of like philosophical tradition to examine uh post-war japan it seems to culminate in i live in fear which is just such a amazing movie uh really enjoyed it and it was really profoundly affected by it and it, it just seemed to be like the kind of like the final as you said jason it seemed to sort of encapsulate uh, all of these films, so it almost seems like all of these films are leading up to that moment. And then it seemed like he got it out of his system. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then he was on to uh, making, interestingly enough, making quite a few films that took place in Japan's uh, past. Mm-hmm. Historical films. Yeah. Which I don't even know where to begin, how to unpack that. why it is that he made that um, sort of transition, which began really with Rashomon, right? Which we're yep. going to talk about next episode. Yep, that's the plan, as I recall. You know, I did I did a, a rating for myself on Letterboxd of my favorite to least favorite Kurosawa films. And um, both of these were towards the bottom. Yeah. They weren't the bottom. Um, the one I enjoyed the least which I think is still a very good film is the most beautiful, which is World War II propaganda film. And then worse than this, also a scandal. I thought where the second half just completely falls off a cliff in my mind, but I thought the quiet duel was probably the, the, the next worst out of that group. I know Eric, you rated it pretty lowly yourself too. Last only after Kagamusha, which I found empty for other reasons. Yeah. It's not that either of them are bad films. They're just lacking in some central quality that I come to associate with the Kurosawa and just sort of came up short. And then I rated Drunken Angel lower because I feel like he did noir so much better with Stray Dog and the Bats as well. Yeah, yeah. Just more elegantly. I did want to say, say, uh, you asked about all of those films and how they culminated in I Live in Fear. And 
there's a quote from Stray Dog that I thought excellently summarizes all of those films from that period, which is, there's no such thing as a bad man, only bad situations. Yeah. That's so appropriate. Yeah. Great way to sum it up. All right, so we are going to talk, uh, sorry. Tell us, tell us what what you what you're recommending we discuss. I think we said Hidden Fortress and Rashomon next, didn't we? Yes. Yeah. I don't know why I suddenly spaced on that. <laughs> I thought that would be a good combo. Yeah. They're a tremendous contrast to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, spoilers. I love them both. <laughs> <laughs> well, for sure. I think that's going to be an interesting conversation. Absolutely. I Rashomon is rightly regarded as one of the greatest films ever made. So, yeah, we certainly a lot to unpack in that film. Sure. Well, thank you. I love Thanks doing this guys. series, and I, I just as I hope, you know, the deep, the deeper we dig into his films, the more we find these fascinating connections. Yeah, for sure. <laughs>